0: What's up, my freaky deekies? I'm Sean Galapagos, the host of the Love Drive podcast. Have you ever considered the role that gender plays in technology? When I think of tech, I don't usually think of any of it as being male or female. But the more I thought about it, the more it became clear that some technologies are decidedly gendered. Siri, for example, is a woman. Not only do we use different gendered voices in our technologies, but everyone who develops tech is of a particular gender. And those developers can affect the way we interact with certain technologies. To help us break it down, I've invited Julia Dick to talk to us about gender and technology, the role of sexuality in the workplace, and more. She's an interdisciplinary artist based in Montreal. She's also the co-host of The XX Files, a radio show on CKUT 90.3 FM. This show explores all aspects of our techno world from the perspective of the women living in it. Stick around because other than discussing gender and technology and the role of sexuality in the workplace, we also discussed the importance of consent in early stage dating, how to speak up about problematic sexist speech in group settings, and why talking about sex with your partner can contribute to a fulfilling sex life. By the way, the intro music that you heard at the top of the show is from Julia's new EP, Wet Look by Ghoul Talk. We'll also be playing another track of hers in its entirety at the end of the show. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Julia Dick, welcome to the show. Thank you. Could you introduce yourself, please?
1: Sure. My name is Julia Dick. I am a radio host of The XX Files on CKUT 90.3 FM. I am a freelance media producer, occasionally writer, experimental musician, sound artist, and performer, and a hairdresser.
0: So you said occasional writer. I've read some of your stuff, and I thought it was really cool. And I guess the first thing I want to talk to you about is sort of women, gender, and sexuality in the workplace. Okay. So you have some experience with lesbians who tech...
1: So yeah, Lesbians Who Tech is an initiative originally coming out of San Francisco. Now there's kind of chapters all over North America. And my friend Rebecca actually is the co-organizer of the Montreal chapter. And they basically it's just an like an initiative to really like get people together, share ideas, share experiences, talk about your work it's like just an opportunity for a bunch of people who may or may not identify as women or as lesbians to get together in the same room and talk about different ways that they're using technology and the ways that that might be different than the mainstream uses of technology, which is like mostly kind of straight, cis, white men.
0: I used to live in San Francisco. So. Okay,
1: so you I've never been to San Francisco, but I'm like, even the Montreal, like the Montreal tech scene is largely white men. So yeah. yeah, there is certainly a need for other voices in tech. And yeah, I think that lesbians who tech is just like a really interesting initiative because people initially would be like, why would sexuality have anything to do with technology? But sexuality in some way this kind of technology, you know, like, or the way that gender might also be technology or like, these are all of these kind of parts of us and they make their way into your jobs and the way that you maybe see the world and the way that you would use technology. And also, especially like, I don't really make a ton of technology. I don't do it like a lot of coding or anything, but I, that's, I made a radio once. So that's not really true. (laughs)
0: That's cool. (laughs)
1: but just like to have an idea of the way things work and the thought process that goes into making all of this technology should be reflective of a kind of wide number of experiences. So that's basically what Lesbians Who Tech does is just include the experiences of queer women.
0: Yeah, I have a friend who says that when he doesn't chicken with other people, he has an appalling lack of perspective. And so if you don't include women, queer folks, people of color in the development of technology, then you have sort of a narrow scope or use case for these technologies. And one of the things that you wrote which was interesting that I didn't know, was that Siri is, speaking of technology, is able to recognize when there's sort of like a heart attack crisis or something that men have mm-hmm. more often and needs more information in, in the case of like a rape or a domestic violence situation.
1: Exactly. I think that like, that is such a strong example of like, okay, who's making this technology if when you think of an emergency things like, yeah, heart attack or falling down the stairs or needing an ambulance, you know, like these are the kinds of things that you think about. Yeah. But somehow it made it past like everybody who was programming Siri that like a rape isn't an emergency that this digital assistant should be able to understand. Right. Or that, yeah, domestic abuse is something that, Siri wouldn't need to understand if she can understand a heart attack or like a a robbery, you know, then. But yeah, that's just like it was a really strong example of who is programming this technology, which is really sad because like we all use it. It doesn't matter what your gender or race is like. A lot of people have a, an iPhone and are using the technology. So it's an, it's being made by a very specific amount of people, but being marketed to everybody when it doesn't really take everybody into account.
0: If we think of these developers that made this technology, and in this particular case with the fact that it doesn't recognize like a rape or a domestic violence call for help as like a, a call for help without needing extra prompting, do you think it was deliberate or do you think it just wasn't thought of and it somehow went it got through all the levels without anyone saying like oh uh, excuse me what about rape is that maybe something we want to consider adding to Syria as a, as like a emergency help function
1: I mean I want to say that it wasn't deliberate and that the opinions and the value systems is just so skewed that it just never even came to the table but that's like seems unlikely like it's got to, it must have come up once but there are also like these ways where more subtly when you talk to a like some kind of artificial intelligence like yeah siri being the most popular one where if you say something that's like terribly misogynistic or you know like people especially i think in the first years of these technologies where kind of see what they could get away with you know you'll Be terribly abusive to your cell phone because you can and you want to know how it's going to respond. And it's weird that that's something that people just kind of do naturally. They want to see how abusive they can be to something. And she just takes it, you know, like there's no like these answers and these responses have all been programmed. Like it wouldn't be that hard for her to be like, hey, that's sexist. Have you thought about this or like... It's not okay to say these kinds of things to people or like, no, I don't want to fuck you or like, you know, like there's like where is she just her consistent response is either like I don't understand or like makes a joke about it, which is often how women are kind of trained in society to act. Like if you're being catcalled, it's like, well, just shut up or like laugh it off because it's going to make everybody more comfortable, even if you're offended. So I kind of think it's it had to come up at some point. So it's yeah, it's pretty sad that these like really toxic ideas about sexuality are embedded and coded into the technologies that we're using.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about the fact that Siri and, and other digital assistants are basically coded to... Because it's true, for the first year or so, people would sort of test... Siri to find out what some what she would answer to to sexist questions like what are you wearing? Or, you know, do you want to fuck? Like I never, I, I don't like Siri. I've never used it. I turn it off, but I could see how some people would just use it to get a reaction that to a question that they know that they shouldn't ask a woman. But instead they have this placeholder that they can kind of test this kind of stuff out. And unfortunately, it's been programmed to have sort of a similar response to how women approach sexual harassment or inappropriate questions, which is sort of to laugh it off, to ignore it, to walk away from it, or to to deviate from or distract from that question.
1: Right. Like, it wouldn't be that hard. Like, what an opportunity to improve the world, you know? Like, if you could just... Like, do a little bit of research on, like, anti-oppression training and, you know, take a couple of, like, couple of phrases and sneak them in there so that when, you know, someone says something that sounds like sexual harassment, that she could have a response that could enlighten someone a little bit or make them think a little bit more about the way that they talk to people. And it's, like, kind of scary if you, like, consider that, like, this is only the first kind of AI that we really have in our kind of quotidian lives. And I can only imagine that there will be more and more in the coming years. Yeah, I think it's like, it's problematic and it's troublesome and it's kind of scary. That's why I I love (laughs) sci-fi.
0: Wait, why do you love sci-fi?
1: Because I'm like so troubled and terrified about like what's going on now. And so it's like impossible to not think about the future. And I feel like that's my only only way to kind of have a stake in the future or a say about the future is to be kind of speculative about it and either, you know, make art that is kind of futuristic in a utopian way where it's like, oh, this is all of the things we're doing wrong now. This is the way that things could potentially be better or in a more dystopic kind of way where it's like, well, if we continue to do The things that we're doing now, here's how this way that this could potentially end up and it's gonna be horrible.
0: Is the movie her sort of an example of one outlook to what what would happen if we sort of continued on this path of just not really caring about the effect that you know gender has in technology?
1: Yeah. I think actually the movie her is interesting because to me, I can't really tell if it's supposed to be like dystopian or utopian. You know, like, it's freaky, and I think that we can kind of agree on that, but it's not that far off from the way that we're living now, even. Like, we're so attached to our cell phones. Mm -hmm. Take the metro, and you just see, like, everybody is just, like, looking at their phone, and I think there's, like, a really similar scene in the movie, like it's almost not even that speculative. It's just kind of a reflection of the way that we're living now. It's like essentially. And I think like obviously, Spike Jones was kind of maybe didn't want to be straight up like this is a dystopian feature or utopian future, but this is a potential way that this could go and, you know, maybe think about it a little bit more about your relationship with technology. But it's just like weird to see how many people are so uncritical about how much time that they're spending with their cell phones. I just
0: recently read this book called Deep Work by Cal Newport, who talks about the fact that we've gone to a point where we just can't stand being bored and we need constant distraction. And cell phones provide that actually network connectivity provides constant distraction, so i could we could easily go there, and I could talk about that forever but <laughs> i'm I'm curious we we now know what happens when women aren't involved in developing technologies, so what's a way forward that that includes women and includes queer folks and includes people of color and and what are what are some of the obstacles in in getting these people to integrate with technological development?
1: It seems like a simple question, but it actually is. It's so challenging because there are so many barriers. Like, you can be like, oh, okay, we need more women in STEM. What, like the sciences and engineering and math and like, yeah, and queer folks and people of color. Like, it just like needs to be more diverse, but kind of starts from the very beginning. Like, even if you, you know, enroll in school and this is something that really interests you, you know, like if you make it to being in your kind of late teens, early twenties without already. And like, you still feel like that's even an option for you. Right. Because like a lot of people just don't even think that it is just from the way that you're raised. And obviously that like depends on kind of your family and geographical location and education. But then, yeah. So if you even make it into a university classroom, It's like your professor is like probably gonna be a white dude and like might have really different ideas than you do, and like you might be surrounded by a bunch of people who you really like have a hard time connecting with and like the culture can be really toxic. I hear this like the same story where you know people arrive in the classroom super ready to learn, but the culture of a bunch of white men together is like really hard to feel comfortable in. If you're like a woman or a queer person or a person of color, like, so they not often that people end up making it all the way through the training. So the workplace continues to be skewed. And then, you know, people like who are working in technology are like, well, you know, there's just not an interest, I guess. You know, women, queer folks, people of color just like aren't cut out for this work or it just doesn't interest them. Like, what can we do about that? Mm. And so, no, I think it, yeah, it needs to really start like super early. And I've seen some of that like really radical librarians <laughs> in like elementary school. I went to the Allied Media Conference last year, and actually, this was like a really like a really big topic. There are a lot of radical librarians really trying to come up with programming that's going to like encourage young girls to actually start working with technology, like building circuits and getting involved in in electronics and getting them interested in in math and science. So yeah, it's kind of unfortunate, but it's just like, yeah, it has to start so early in order for it to make it down the pipe along the way.
0: Yeah. Have you heard of Goldie Blocks? No. It's like building blocks for girls because they found out that like, you know, Legos and mechanos and techniques or something were sort of marketed towards boys. And they found that, you know, if you just change the messaging a little bit, then you have a lot more adoption in girls. And But they weren't changing the messaging because, I don't know, they were selling more units when they were marketing to boys. So Blocks is, is like building blocks for girls, and it teaches the, the fundamentals of engineering at a very young age. We're talking like, you know, four to six or whatever. And it gets them going on the path, right, where you have a choice of traditionally gendered toys for girls or something that's going to like drive them into engineering, building, electronics, all that kind of stuff. Right. They're cool.
1: That is awesome.
0: (laughs) You were talking about toxic culture and how like a woman coming into that space, into the space of maybe some sort of training or workshop or early orientation for an engineering program or computer science program, how it's hard to fit in. And I'm just curious, like, what does that toxic culture look like? Because I guess the way we can start by dismantling it is by explaining it.
1: Totally. I studied some economics and math, but not really like the hard sciences in university. So like I can't firsthand speak to that specific experience. But even like in electronic music, for example, you show up somewhere and, you know, it's just like the idea that everybody kind of knows more than you. Mm. And I think that that's something that... Women are often less quick to put all of their cards on the table about all of the skills that they have or all of the training that they have or, you know, and it just is like seems like when you get a lot of men together, there's this kind of showing off of, you know, how much you know or how much you've worked with when you're even just like coming into it, you know, like probably everybody knows the same amount or like, especially if you're starting a course, you know, it's kind of ground zero. Right. You're supposed to be learning. But there's already this idea of like people wanting to talk about their experiences in the past or how much they know. And th- like that already kind of makes people uncomfortable if you're like, well, I'm showing up here to learn. And, you know, all these people already are talking about all of these different programs that they've used or how they know how to code this or all of this gear that they have or et cetera, et cetera. I think that's a one really small kind of invisible mm. thing that i'm sure that people don't even really notice and just also to be really aware of the diversity in the room like i think it's so hard to recognize when you are part of the majority how it would feel to be of the minority in mm. a group. So I think just, like, really taking a survey of the room and just, like, being sensitive to that is something that people should try to do a little bit more of. And then there are, like, some things that are just straight-up problematic, you know? Like, talking about women in a way that's, a, like, objectifying. Or, like blatant sexism and homophobia, like it tends to kind of slip through the cracks. People really get away with it when they're in a group of men together, you know, even if it's like maybe only two people share this opinion. It's like if your peers aren't calling you out for it, you're not ever going to learn. That's a huge problem. People make sexist comments all the time and they're like without even really realizing that they're problematic because nobody's told them that they're problematic or the person that's told them that they're problematic is, you know, a woman or a person of color or a queer person who is personally offended. But if it's one of your peers... Telling you like, hey, you know, like that's actually not cool or like I don't actually want to engage in like talking about women's bodies that way. That's how things start to change. Mm. I mean, I hope.
0: (laughs) Well, if we spoke up more, then more of our peers would know that there's an issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, I totally agree that in group settings, it's hard to speak up because people don't want to rock the boat. They don't want to look like they're judging you or that they're superior to you. But the reality is that if we don't speak up, then nothing really changes. Mm-hmm. So we need to speak up more. I'm not great at it, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm I'm committing to to when I hear it and and recognize it to speaking up and saying something along the lines of like, yeah, I don't really want to hear that kind of talk, or um, I don't agree with that speech, or I don't think that's right. Yeah. Or shut up.
1: Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, maybe they're going to be mad about it at the moment, but, you know, hopefully they're going to go home and think about it. But, like, if I'm in a group of men and they say something that to me seems sexist or homophobic and, like, I bring it up as being like, oh, that's offensive. Like, you know, we shouldn't really talk that way. And they're like, oh, feminist bitch or dyke or whatever. Like, it's like, you, oh, you obviously you are offended because it's offensive to you. Right. But if somebody who's your peer... Says it, you're gonna take their advice hopefully more to heart.
0: <laughs> yeah. One of the actually I do speak up. I the way I do it is that, is I say, Oh yeah, we don't say that anymore. And then oh we yeah, we don't say that anymore. We don't call things gay. We don't we just don't say that, you know? And and I did some stand-up comedy and I used some language where someone was like, Yeah, that that was problematic for me and and my friends. And so they said that to me because they cared you know if you don't care about somebody you don't you don't try to go and change them Mm -hmm. and so i was grateful for the feedback and i was really uncomfortable but it passed you know i just like sat in the discomfort and understood that that my speech was problematic and then i was able to make some changes to my behaviors which is basically what we're asking people to do
1: it's so important to be uncomfortable like (laughs) and a lot of people get away w- with not being uncomfortable for a, a lot of their life so it's understandable when you're put in that situation like it's hard but it's kind of like get used to it some people have been uncomfortable for a really long time and or all the time yeah so it's just a really necessary part of growth
0: yeah this sort of reminds me of of this time in my life when my father and I were having a lot of communication issues because I, I had decided that I didn't like the way he was talking to me. And so every time he said something that I didn't like, I would say, hey, I don't really, I don't like it when you say that. And it, it got to the point where I was saying that often. And at one point he said, I don't really know how to talk to you anymore because I just feel like I'm not doing anything right. And it was nice that he brought that up and that I was able to bring all that stuff up because eventually we got to a point where we can have a conversation where he's not offending me. So there was change and it was uncomfortable on his part and it was uncomfortable on my part because I was breaking these dynamics that we had had forever about the way we spoke to each other.
1: Yeah. And it's probably so worth it in the end.
0: Of course. (laughs) That's That's how things change. So where, how do we move forward? I mean, how do women and queer folk and people of color like break into technology and make an impact? What's the way forward?
1: I think there are a number of things that kind of need to happen simultaneously. Kind of top down, like some serious anti-oppression training in these workplaces that have been more male-dominated, but like also on the other end, trying to encourage more diverse folks to be interested in technology and feel like that's something that they have a stake in. But also from the other side to help the people who are already there be more inclusive. And then there are some like strategies that are, like, are a little bit difficult, but and more hard line. Like, so Lesbians Who Tech, for example, has quotas of who is included in their conferences, who's speaking. So they make sure that it's 50% people of color. And you know, you just, if that's your quota, that's what you got to live up to. Like sometimes you have to search a little bit harder to try and find those diverse people who are doing work in your field. Like they exist. You can find them. And like, if you can't then expand your network, put out a call, find people and train them. Mm. So I think that like the quota model, although it's like not ideal, right. It's a stepping stone. And I like, I've seen more and more organizations start to kind of put that into practice and, Yeah, it's like it's hard and there's a risk of feeling really tokenized, but people are pretty good at following rules. It's something that they understand. People get numbers. So if you say like, you know, it has to be 50% women or if it has to be 30% trans folks or it has to be 50% people of color, like you just do it. You do it. You do what you have to to make that happen. And it's like kind of a forceful strategy that doesn't necessarily feel organic but I don't know that there I think that it's probably the best strategy that we have and like if lesbians who tech is doing it and all everything could do that
0: yeah I volunteer at this organization here and it's a bike co-op we help people fix their bikes and a bicycle mechanic is a male-dominated industry. I mean, the bicycle industry is male-dominated. The the mechanics, the shops, it's all very male-dominated. And I used to work for this co-op organization called The Bike Kitchen in San Francisco. And we tried really hard to have more inclusive recruitment strategies for our volunteers. And we did anti-oppression training. And a lot of, not a lot, some people were really against it and they left the organization because they were too ingrained in the way they did stuff. And... We also had like a WTF night, women, trans, and Mm femmes. So for mechanics and volunteers to come together and just be in a safer space. And this organization that I work for in Montreal is now starting to look at what it means to create a safer space for women and for basically non-cis men to come and use the space. And that includes some format of the quota model where we will train non-cis men to be volunteer mechanics. Even if you, I mean, typically we ask for people to have some experience, but because it's already male dominated, it's hard for people that aren't men to get that experience. So we'll we'll train and we and we'll, I mean, we need volunteers. We're not super picky, but we want a a more of a balance. And so we'll train women and non men that that aren't great at mechanic yet so that we can bring them into our space so that our space can feel safer for a whole bunch of different people. Mm -hmm. I love it I think it's beautiful I'd rather work with someone that wants to work there that maybe doesn't know everything and we can sort of learn together and bring them up to speed rather than just have a bunch of dudes that know exactly what they're doing and that will tell you how to do it
1: exactly and like that can never be a bad thing you know like down the line there will be just like that's more people you know like 50% of the population (laughs) who is going to feel like they're welcomed in your space. Like that's good for business. It's good for morale. It's literally like diversity is never bad.
0: Well, some men are going to say that it is bad because it jeopardizes their standing in the community, in that organization, in their bank account, in a whole bunch of different things.
1: If you, I mean, it's like not, nobody's getting kicked out, you know, it's like, well, growth is good. Then there's going to be more people who can come here and, you know, the community can grow and will be stronger. You kind of, I mean, it's also like, you just have to have a little bit of a longer term lens on, mm. I think it's like really easy to see a lot of negatives in the short term. But if you think about things on a longer term, there's like, there is enough for everybody. You just need to find ways to work together and like, include more people.
0: I mean, that's the abundance model of of living versus Mm -hmm. the the shortage model. I'm just going to play devil's advocate here because I can see a situation where an organization has this quote unquote quota model where they're looking for a certain percentage of whatever the thing that they're looking for. If you're not that thing, then that job isn't really available for you, even though you might be qualified. You know, it's, it's that argument. that like, oh, well, I'm qualified. I should get the job based on my qualifications, not based on what color I was born or who I'm attracted to or what gender I feel I am.
1: Right. And, you know, a lot of people have been feeling that for like many, many years. Like that's the way our society has been where like People of color, women, trans folks have felt like they can't have this position for all of those exact reasons, and also, like these things only kind of come in like especially when you talk about equity practices and hiring. it's like they really only come in to practice if there's like two people who are equally qualified right. So it's not like somebody who's less qualified than you doesn't deserve this job is getting it over like over you just because they're a person of color. Right. Yeah. But and so it's like I don't know that sometimes you have to give things up a little bit, you know, it's like I know that's so hard for me to even say be like, well, you know, if you don't get a job, like just be happy that this like person of color got it and that. Or this woman got it. Or this trans person got it. And like that the world's more diverse and you live in a, in a better place. Like I get it. Like that's hard when you're like I have rent to pay and like uh, student loans. Like but there there is enough to go around. Mm. And also like chances are your entire way has been a little bit easier for you than it has been for this. Like because yeah for like… For a person of color or a a woman or a trans person to even, like, get to that interview and to even have made it through the years of school and, like, and and everything with, like, a lot of obstacles in their way. Like, yeah, they probably did work harder than you did.
0: Mm. They probably deserve the
1: job. (laughs) Yeah. It sucks to feel uncomfortable sometimes. Sometimes it sucks to not get what you want. But some people have been feeling that for, like, centuries. Yeah. So... We have to make sacrifices for the world to be better.
0: Yeah. I interviewed at a tech company. I interviewed at GitHub in the Bay Area for a sales position because I used to do technology sales. And the feedback was that I was going to hit on the employees and clients. Like that was the, yeah, that I was too charming, which by, which is like sort of part of sales, but and I conducted myself with nothing but the utmost professionalism in this interview. But the the feedback was that they gave to my friend who worked there, like, we're not going to hire that guy because we think he's going to hit on the employees and clients. So basically, I was labeled a sexual predator at at this tech company based on, I think, the my charm during the interview, which which I think was appropriate given the nature of the position and the fact that they did some Googling and they found all of my articles on you know
1: i'm like did you already have the podcast i had yeah i
0: had i had i had videos and i had articles and so basically they they saw the fact that i was sort of sex positive but also really out about it and uh, decided that that was kind of a risk that they weren't willing to take even though i hadn't shown i didn't hit on my interviewers i didn't you know i didn't do anything inappropriate which i understand some companies are risk averse they don't want to put themselves in a position where they might have to have a situation that reflects poorly on them in the future. So Mike, I guess my question is, what role does sexuality play in the workplace? Because they obviously made some assumptions based on some stuff that they found online that, that is all sex positive, all of it, but they still deemed it too risky.
1: Oh, that's such a good question. And it's something that I think about a lot because me too. I'm, you know, I work in sexuality. I'm very like, I'm like openly gay person and plan to be do more and more work publicly around sexuality. And people are super risk adverse. And it's like, for some reason, it's like, if you talk about sexuality, you're a pervert. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that in itself is super problematic. but. I kind of think like the, these opportunities that I've maybe lost or like didn't get because of whatever my internet presence or because of being openly gay or because being openly a feminist, it's like, well, that's probably not a culture that I wanted to be involved in anyways, Or like maybe those opportunities weren't really meant for me either. So then, I mean, I ended up working in at the Simone de Beauvoir Institute at Concordia, where it's like, obviously, like, it's the Institute for Gender and Sexuality Studies. And, and you know, found was able to find something that aligned with my values and where I was like, encouraged to be who I am. Like, I'm sure they saw probably Googled me and, you know, saw that I had whatever things that I've written or have done and probably thought that that was an asset rather than a liability. And it's like, More and more organizations, I think, are coming to terms with this. It's a risk, but I think I think it's worthwhile one. Like an organization who thinks that you're a sexual predator because you're a sex positive, like media personality, is probably not an organization you would really want, like feel comfortable with in the kind of quotidian working environment, anyways. Yeah. And yeah, sometimes you just like have to do your own thing.
0: Which is what I'm doing now. It's interesting because at that same time, I was also doing... I was looking for some training and it was either sex educator training for a hotline where you just like call and ask questions about whatever and then also rape crisis counselor and I actually got the rape crisis counselor training position which I found really interesting how one company was look look at me as a a risk and another company looked at me as an asset they saw all the stuff I did online and they said yeah we want somebody that has more depth and breadth when it comes to sexuality and understanding people's sexuality than somebody who doesn't, which was awesome.
1: Exactly.
0: And then at the same time, I had a friend say that, because I wrote an article about, about this in the Good Men Project, about how I was I labeled a sexual predator. And she said, you know, if you put your website on your resume, then that's on you. I mean, you, there's no place for sexuality in a resume. And the fact, I mean, the fact is if you just Google my name, there's three pages of articles and stuff on sexuality. But basically her point was you just, you don't bring it up and you try to hide it and whitewash it so that you can get the job ultimately that, that you applied for. It's Kind of a bummer actually.
1: That is a bummer. I, I feel the opposite way. Like, no, I think that I'm just like, this is my life. These are the things that interest me. So I want to work in an organization that thinks that this is okay and like this is the way that the kind of people that i want to align myself with might be harder to get health benefits <laughs> or a pension but heck i don't know you know it's like rather than to try to dampen a part of yourself and like you're also going to do better work if you are able to be who you are completely yeah i had actually been to business school and my my undergrad is in is in business with a minor in gender studies and performance. But in my early 20s with like often getting opportunities, I had a lot of friends who were artists to do kind of like, you know, like some nude modeling or whatever, like or like in art projects. And I was always kind of like, you know, no, I don't know what I'm gonna do in my career yet. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm established and like I can't really take these opportunities. Now I'm like, okay. Now I'm like I kind of know know who I am more, and know that I'm you know like a conservative work environment is never gonna be for me. Right. So I'm like okay, like I'm almost thirty. I'm like okay, I yeah I can kind of pursue this a little bit more. Like sure, my parents maybe it wouldn't it would still not be like. Thrilled about it, but there's like, yeah, things about sexuality in, in public that I'm like, really like to explore. And I'm like, this is like not, yeah, an organization who doesn't want me because of these things. is like not a club that I want to be a part of anyway.
0: Right. So this begs the question, what are these aspects of sexuality that you would like to explore more that might make your parents sort of question your choices?
1: Like drag for one. Ooh. Yeah, I did only ever. I did one drag like video and I just like found it to be a super empowering experience. And I, I'm really interested in performance. So that's something that I think I would really like to do more of. And I'm like, I can see how people can find that to be a little bit perverse or hmm. whatever. And then, yeah, also just in like in performance that, you know, could might perhaps. Be a little perverse or involve some kind of nudity or explore sexuality in different ways. Like, and then also just like on the radio, I talk about sexuality all the time. So I feel like I'm like, okay, this is part of me that obviously I'm very interested in and like I want to explore. And also, even like I have a friend who um, works for this organization called Make Love Not Porn, they basically distribute like, sex videos, but they're made by, like, they're, like, homemade sex sex videos. So they're real. Like, it's real-life sex. And I'm like, okay, this is something that, like, I'm super interested in potentially pursuing in the future. Yeah. And I'm like, which I could have, yeah, if you, like, five years ago, I could have, wouldn't have never been like, well, I can't have something like that floating around on the internet. And, of course, like, the idea of having that, like, a sex act be on the internet is still very terrifying. But I think that it's a really important project. And I think that it's like there, I mean, everybody wants to explore their own sexuality in different ways. And I'm just like trying not to limit myself based on getting a job.
0: Right. (laughs) So I I didn't want to bring this up, but it it just keeps coming up. So a, a, a lover and I made like we recorded ourselves having sex. And I've done this several times and I always have like the copy because it's like my camera and my stuff. And I think my partners were always like, oh yeah, that, we could do that. I don't really care. I don't really care to have it. You know, we can watch it together or whatever. But all of a sudden, like a year after having made this, this video, my friend said, hey, can, can you send me that video? And I had never sent anybody, like I had kept control of all of these like nude photos or like videos of myself. And so it was sort of, I mean, obviously I trust her like completely, but every time you send something on the internet, I mean, I, I try not to write anything or send anything that I'm not willing to see on a billboard, like in terms of my communications, because.
1: Wow. That's a really good approach.
0: Yeah. Because that shit, it can, it can get leaked, you know? And I'm not saying that people want to see you know, me naked, uh, video naked. But so I sent it to her, knowing that there's a chance now that it's outside of my control that this video could eventually show up somewhere. And ultimately, I realized that I'm totally okay with that. Like there's nothing. I'm not ashamed of it. I mean, it's a it's a great video. The lighting's awesome. The sound quality's good. So like from a production standpoint, I'm happy with the work. And and I just had to let that go as in like, not something that's really important. Like it's not going to, obviously it's not going to ruin my career. If anything, it might help it.
1: Yeah. Obviously like to be, have something like that leaked is one thing. And then like to have the agency to share it with people who are paying for it and, you know, want to see it. There, there are two different things, but I, yeah, I think it's like, we are just living in a society that is so afraid of sexuality. Hmm. But at the same time, like there's like overflows of porn on the internet and people consume that. Like practically everybody consumes that. So
0: <laughs> And it all flows through Montreal.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's, there's not to be like, Obviously, like in terms of Internet privacy, I don't want to be like, well, if you're not doing anything wrong, then whatever. Let people have it shouldn't matter. But it's like you're not doing anything wrong. Right. You know, it's like if you're consenting adults making a well-produced sex video, like
0: even if it's not well-produced.
1: Totally, yeah. As long as the consent is there and the adults is there, like
0: that's that's it. That's really the all that really matters. Yeah, it's true though. We we do. We, there's a lot of shame around sexuality, and it's weird because it's this thing that that we all have. We all have. Se- I mean, sexuality is, is something that we all share. You mm-hmm. know, whether we engage in sex or not, or who we do it with, the fact is that it, it does affect everybody. But we're we're ashamed to admit it, and we're ashamed to say that we do it or that we like a particular brand of it. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, there are repercussions for being out about anything that isn't the norm.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think
0: that's unfortunate.
1: Yeah, because there are also huge repercussions to this culture of shame around sexuality, whereas like people don't have, aren't well educated in terms of what is like what is desire and what's so like you know and that like it's okay to ha- to desire sex and like it's okay if the your partner is desiring sex it's like this idea of things being so shameful that's where like that's why people are so confused about consent that's why we have like an entire me too movement you know mm. like that's why there we have like Clearly, there's something is getting lost here that like so many people feel like they have kind of been taken advantage of or harassed or assaulted sexually, yet so many, like not nearly as many people would identify that they, they have done something without the consent of somebody else. Right. So it's like this way where if, you know, women are taught that they're not supposed to be sexual or they're not supposed to have a desire or they're not supposed to express this desire. And then men are taught that like they are, they're allowed to have a desire, but like the, they should desire women who don't have a desire. Like that's a, just like a recipe for disaster. Mm -hmm. And then if it's like, okay, there's all of this porn but, like, that's, like, there on the internet that anybody can watch. But there's, like, not really any, con- like, context for this. And it's, like, not really okay to talk about in public or even, like, with your friends. Like, people don't discuss this. Then, yeah, no kidding. You're going to watch some, like, horribly misogynist porn and think that that's what sex is. And it's not. And you have nobody else telling you that you're wrong. yeah. It's yeah, I just feel like think that the culture of shame around sexuality and like the lack of education and like lack of a conversation is so it's like just is laying such terrible ground for yeah, just having this like horrible, horrible sexual culture.
0: My brother was 13 years old and he put on a porn tape and he was drinking a beer and I was eleven and my mom caught us. And I, mean, I was too young to understand, was I 11? Yeah, I was like 10 or 11. I was too young to understand what was going on or what I was seeing. And I remember this is the conversation that my mom had with me after in private. She just said, that's not what real sex looks like.
1: Wow, that's so good.
0: I mean, it didn't go any further than that. Yeah. That that was it. And But also this was like 1992, so kudos for, for being able to have that conversation, even though it was a very short conversation. It's sort of one-sided. Yeah. And it was more of a comment than a conversation. But, but that stuck with me. That stuck with me that like what, I, what I'd seen, which was just fucking with no context, wasn't love. Like that's not really what couples do or what mm-hmm. people do with each other. I mean, sometimes they do,
1: but. Yeah. When nobody's talked to you about sex and like the education system is horrible. Bad. So bad. And, like, it totally depends on the family. But, like, so many people just, like, don't talk about sex with their kids. They expect the school to do it. And then the school's not doing it. And then you have this, like, access to all of this information on the Internet. And it's like, yeah, you're going to get a really skewed idea about what is real and what's not. And then when you're also don't even... Realize that there can be a conversation around sex, or like talking while you're having sex is like, is a good thing, and it's okay to maybe, like, it's good to ask a check in with the other person. It's like not not sexy to be like, "Do you like this?" But people don't think it's sexy to be like, "Do you like this?" And like that's such a problem. Or like to like verbally express what they're into or what they're not into, or like just have any kind of a it's like sex is a like body conversation you can have a oral conversation as well <laughs> you know there can be there can be many conversations on so many levels but are just like I'm like I've pretty much I don't watch a ton of tv or movies but like I don't think I've ever really even seen like ongoing consent in like television sex or like or sex in a movie.
0: I don't think I've ever seen that. And I watch a lot of yeah. I watch a lot of movies.
1: So there's like a huge conversation that has happen like over and over and over and over again there, I think.
0: I mean, I uh I wrote a blog post called Talking About Sex Will Lead to Having More Sex. And for me, I've always so I'm also a communications major. I I went to the University of Santa Barbara and I got a a degree in communications, which was by the way 90% women because I mean, it's sort of like why the engineering department was 90% men. I mean, I I went the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've always loved communicating. And at some point I realized that the more I communicate, the more I learn about the person that I'm communicating with. So it's obvious. And then it builds on itself. And that also includes when we're having sex. The more I communicate about sex, the more that I can learn about what it is that they want. So I just learned that talking about sex will lead to better sex and often more of it because when I bring up the subject of sex, well, it turns out that that's actually kind of a turn on for some people and will sort of activate their arousal system and sort of engage them more on that level. And I had a, I had a girlfriend who our first kiss, I asked her if I could kiss her. Or if she would like a kiss and she said yes and then after she told me that it was kind of cheesy you know because she hadn't she just wasn't used to talking about that kind of stuff and and people are used to having this, this nonverbal dance which I find problematic and frankly like I just don't like not knowing what's going on mm-hmm. so the easiest way to figure out what's going on is to talk about it I think nonverbal is it's great if you can play it if if you're tuned in but for, for the most part, for most people, it's just easier to ask.
1: Totally. And I mean, to, like, for most of us, the first time that you're having sex with someone, like, maybe you don't know this person enough to, like, fully understand all of their, like, facial cues and, like, all of their body language, you know? To be able to be, like, 100%, like, this is what this person is thinking. Like, just ask. Just ask. It's or so just, much easier. Like, so easy.
0: <laughs> Why don't people ask?
1: I think, yeah, because they think it like that it's like not romantic or like is somehow unorganic or like ruins the mood. Like we're just supposed to be two bodies like getting lost in each other, which like that can still happen with a conversation and like. I don't know. People just have this idea that it's like not hot Mm. to talk about what you want or to ask what the other person wants. But like, I think it's pretty much across the board, from what I understand, is that it's hot. (laughs) Once you start doing it, it's way hotter. Yeah. It just adds this entire another level. And it doesn't like if somebody's into it. They're gonna be in like verbally into it, and you're gonna be le- like, m- and then you're gonna feel more confident, and then they're gonna feel more confident, and then things are just gonna keep getting better and better and better. It's you just, it's the first time. It's like a bit awkward.
0: It's gonna be awkward anyways.
1: Yeah,
0: <laughs> the first time is always like no kind matter of awkward. what. Yeah, I think that our greatest tool to arouse somebody is our our the power of speech. I mean. Totally. It's cool if you're hot, great. that's that, that's that That helps. But yeah. the ability to talk about sex and to ask for what you want and to express your desires, it just makes everything so much easier. And I also think that what's not hot is doing something that your partner doesn't like because maybe you thought that they would or because your other partner likes it and instead they go like, Oh no or please don't do that. Like that's not hot.
1: Or they don't say anything and then they go home feeling weird afterwards, like
0: which is actually more common.
1: Yeah, super common. So much easier to just ask.
0: <laughs> Could you give me an example of what that looks like?
1: For yeah, for example, just like I think sometimes it's good to ask if you can kiss somebody. Sometimes like you sometimes you you really know, but moving beyond that just like checking in kind of consistently just like do you like this it's so easy to say do you like this or like can i take off your shirt mm. and then being you know like moving forward what do you like what are you into or do you have any hard nose mm. it's a really good question because like at least then you you know like have some kind of a, a framework maybe people are a little bit shy to say what they like right off the bat yeah some people aren't, but what yeah, what do you like? What are you into? And then people it gives people an opportunity to be like, well, you know, I'm actually pretty vanilla, but I'm interested in exploring, or like I'm I'm really open to most things, but like no fisting or you don't know? touch my butt. Yeah, or exactly. So just like there are so many ways that you can have this conversation. And if you're like new to ongoing consent, just like Simple, like, is this okay? Can I do this? Would you like this? Do you like this? Mm-hmm. Is like, do you like this? Like, that's the like best question. Mm-hmm. And that's like the answer is like, yeah, if the answer is no, then like, okay, stop and reevaluate and you know, see where you may have gone wrong. Yeah, but like, you would never, most people don't want to be doing something to somebody else that they don't want, like, right grand majority of people do want to be pleasing the other person and it's just like it gets lost in the communication and then yeah or just like yeah what are your do you have any hard nose it's like mm. people are usually easier to like list off the things that they're like super uncomfortable with yeah. and then it's like okay that's on the table just don't do those things and keep checking in and you're good
0: there's a practice that i sometimes employ called desires, fears, and boundaries that, that that I learned a few weeks ago. I mean, I've been doing some form of this for a while, but, but someone really broke it down for me in in a past episode with the spiritual playboy and desires, fears, and boundaries is something that you can have. It's a conversation that you can have before a lovemaking session with a person, whether it's like a new partner or somebody that you've been with forever about what are your desires right now what are your fears and what are your boundaries? Yeah, and so I mean that's just a beautiful framework and really really easy to say. Well, my desires are for I would really like to like tie you up and you know have intercourse with you blindfolded and you on your stomach. My fears are that you will think that that's like a little weird, and my boundaries is that like while I want to dominate you, I don't really want you to dominate me. And so that's like what that might look like. And then the other person could just tell you what their desires, fears, and boundaries are. And then we, mm-hmm. we know what's available.
1: Exactly.
0: And I, I just like that. I like that idea. I just like the concept of being able to be really, really open about what you want and what you don't want. And then to see if that matches up with the person that you're with.
1: That's awesome. I like this. Desires, fears, boundaries. Yeah. Cool.
0: It's, it's simple.
1: Yeah, no, but it's so important.
0: <laughs> Do you have a parting word for our listeners or a parting thought?
1: Talk about sex more. Don't be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> and yeah, talk about sex more but in a like in a constructive way and positive way. I think that that's, that would be my my takeaway. Okay. And
0: then you and I will both work on you know on that work of like helping people and bringing up the topic of sex and sexuality and making it more open and and easier to have those conversations. Totally. Thank you so much.
1: No problem. Thank you.
0: The Love Drive is produced by me, Sean Galanos, with the help of Guilford Street Studios. This episode was edited by me and Steph Colburn. And the music is from Ghoul Talk's new EP, Wet Look. You can find more information about me or The Love Drive by going to thelovedrive.com. If you want to know more about our guest or what was talked about in this episode, then check out the links in the show notes on my website or your podcast app. Did you like the show? Then it would mean the world to me if you could tell a friend about the podcast. I work hard on this and would love nothing more than for more people to enjoy it as well. Here's another track from Julia's new EP, Wet Look. This is how Julia describes her music.
1: It's a little bit dramatic. Some of it is kind of crystally and soft. Some of it's like pretty raw and hard, a little bit lo-fi. It's really textural.